Did anyone sing, I will hold me fast? Just want to know if you sang that this morning. Well, for those who may be visiting with us today, we are, I got a new theme. We are galloping through Galatians. How do you like that? Very slow gallop, but we are working our way through the book of, of Galatians, and we're going to be in chapter 4, uh, verses 6 through verse 11 this morning. Before we dive into that text, though, I would like us to think a bit. We you know we talk about this is to the Galatians, and we focus on what's going on with the Galatians and with reference to ourselves. But I want to take a moment to think about Paul, ask you to do so with me this morning. We had a great introduction to the book of Philippians this morning, and Paul being in prison when he wrote that particular book. But I want to talk about what was always going on in Paul's life for just a moment to set us up for this particular text. And I think one of the ways that I would like to do that, if if you're already in Galatians, please just turn back with me for a moment to a couple of passages, one in Romans chapter 9. And what I want to remind us, just before we dive into our text this morning, is that Paul lived his life as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ with an ongoing and great, constant, constant burden for others. In the book of Romans chapter 9, beginning that chapter, we're reminded of his burden for his own people. Chapter 9, verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and, notice the next word, unceasing grief in my heart. Paul lived his life with a great burden for his own for his own people now if you would turn with me to just before we get to Galatians turn to 2nd Corinthians chapter 11 the very familiar passage I believe in chapter 11 because we've read at different times of this I guess we could kind of call it a grocery list of things 2nd Corinthians 11 that Paul experienced for the sake of the gospel tremendous things that came upon him in his faithfulness, even mentioning this morning what happened in the region of Galatia where he was even stoned in one particular time. But I want you to look at this text with me for again, again just for a moment. And remember, he is, he is defending his apostleship by what happened to him, not because Paul wants to focus upon himself. Rather, he wants to affirm the fact of his apostleship because his apostleship was being attacked That means his gospel was being attacked, and it wasn't Paul's gospel, it was God's gospel. And so what he's saying in this particular section, as he's defending his apostleship, is I want to know how many of the false apostles have ever gone through what I've gone through. Look with me, beginning 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm I'm more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times 
I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from robbers, from rivers, excuse me, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. My. Now, verse 28. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern. Can I paraphrase? Of burden. Of burden. Of all of the churches. I have a Ryrie study Bible. He has a little footnote concerning that verse that I just read. He says, painful as Paul's physical difficulties were with his spiritual difficulties were, his spiritual burdens were even greater. Paul went to bed at night burdened for the churches. Paul went to, he got up in the morning thinking about the churches, praying for them, concerned for them. And Galatians were no different. Turn over with me now to our chapter, Galatians chapter 4. Why is that? If you look in 4.19, it's because as he addresses them in Galatians 4.19, these were his children in the faith. Parents, do you know what it is to be burdened for your children? To be burdened for your, in our case, to be burdened for your grandchildren. He carried that for these Galatians, and he is greatly bothered about the reality of their spiritual condition. He even calls them earlier in chapter 3 to the reality that they are being foolish about what they are listening to as a false gospel that he says in chapter 1 is no gospel at all. And this burden comes out throughout the book that he has for these people that he loves so much. One writer says, quote, Paul carried a daily pressure that assaulted his peace and his joy. It assaulted it. I don't think he lost it. But it assaulted it. I think that's a good, a good statement. I think there's an additional issue that's going on. Remember, he's writing the church's plural concerning in Galatia. And that is, I believe that there are times that he's tearfully wondering how many of these Galatians, how many of these people that he served and he conveyed the gospel to, to them, how many may have been like the seed that Jesus talks about in the in the parable of the, of the seed and the soils and the seed of the gospel and the soil of man's heart. And how many of those might have been like that, the seed that's sown on the rocky soil, remember, of human hearts? Where there is a, a joyous and immediate response to the gospel. And I think we'll see that was so later on in this, in this chapter. But it is not deep-seated, perhaps, by many and only temporary. And this would explain why many of the Galatians, it would, the Galatians, it would seem to be on their part an attraction to a false gospel that the Judaizers are seeking to get them to return to. A gospel that says you are saved by faith plus your works, plus the law, plus trying to keep a, a, a personal level of law, righteousness, that would be enough to try to work your way into God's heaven. Back in chapter 2, verse 16, heart of the, of the book of Galatians 2.16. Would you look at it with me? 
Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ, in Jesus Christ, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. He has a great burden, perhaps that's what they're still trusting in. And that's why in chapter 4, a couple of weeks ago in verses 1 through 3, he talks about this status of still being bondage in bondage to the elemental principles of the world. And he, he's speaking about with reference back where they grew up trying to establish a self-righteousness by works, by the law. And then he speaks about Christ coming into the world and how it would change all of that. So here's what he does in the book of Galatians. The whole book, and he does in our text here this morning, and that is this. He treats them, he addresses them, he speaks to them as believers. Notice chapter 4, verse 12. I beg of you, brethren. So he speaks to those as if they have received Christ sincerely and are genuinely born again. But at the same time, he is always warning them. Always warning them that if they are continuing to give effort to the works of the law as a means of saving grace in their lives, then they remain in bondage. And his ministry then potentially could be of no avail in their lives. He says that down in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 4 that we'll come to today. Now in verses 4 through verse 6, he talked about the reality of Christ's coming, fullness of time. God sends his, his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we, notice, Paul's speaking to them as believers, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And now he was, as he has spoken about before, he is talking about this great, great truth this doctrine of sonship adopted into God's family. John 1.12, remember, but as many as receive him, to them he gave the power to become, or the right to become children of God. The authority, the privilege, the blessing of sonship, adoption into his family, loved by the Father with the love the Father has for his own Son. And we have been reminded, you and I were not naturally born children of God. But God, those words even that we read this morning in the scriptures, but God in the gospel, I pray that's true of you this morning, that you became a child by divine adoption, chose you, set you apart, forever his. So notice what he does then when he mentions at the end of verse 5, you've received the adoption of sons. Then in verse 6, he says, because you are sons. And it tips us off to what he's saying in the next verses. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The results, the benefits, the blessings that he mentioned in these particular verses of sonship, of being adopted as a child of God. If you're taking some notes this morning from the bulletin or wherever, We're going to look at three results of having become adopted by the God of all grace as his child. Pray that's you this morning.
And the first one that he mentions in verse 6 is this. He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. I want to stop right there. And the first result of having received Christ and been adopted into his family is you've been given the gift of the spirit. Paul loves this great truth, and rightly so, because the work of regeneration by the Spirit of God makes us alive to God. By believing in Christ, you've been given the gift of the Spirit. First, God sends his Son to make us his child, and then he sent his Son, his Spirit, within us, so let us know that we are really his child. This is relating to a doctrine called the doctrine of illumination. Think about it. Being alive to God. It is a primary ministry of the Holy Spirit to confirm sonship in the heart of the redeemed. Part of your assurance of salvation that you know, that you know, that you know you are God's child is the ministry of the Spirit that came into your life, into your heart, into your inner life when you believed and now confirms to you that you are his child. The Spirit gives spiritual life. It is the Holy Spirit who regenerates and makes you spiritually alive to God. I love that passage in the book of Titus. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, so applicable to the Galatians, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Those are parallel concepts at the end of that verse. It is the work of the Spirit that brings regeneration to the heart. It's interesting to note, likewise, in verse, at the end of verse 4, when he says, God sent forth his Son. He's using the same terminology in verse 6. In fact, the same word. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into his heart, into our hearts. It is the spirit that brings this regeneration and brings assurance through sanctification because the Holy Spirit strengthens sonship by the assurance given us in the scriptures. Sonship is confirmed by the spirit but through the scriptures, through the word of God. So a verse like 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know it. I'm sure you know it. If you don't, you ought to know it. It says, if any man be in Christ, what? He's a new creation. Things are past, new things have come. It's one thing that it says that. It is another thing that you can hear that or read that, and the Spirit says to your heart, that's me. That's me. That's happened to me, and it is the job of the Spirit of God when we hear the Word, when we read the Word of God, to bring that to bear upon our souls and confirm sonship. Look at the verse again. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son. It's an interesting title there. Holy Spirit as the Spirit of his Son. Notice, God has sent forth the Spirit. Now we have the Spirit, we have God. We could say God the Father, God the Son, all of the Trinity are involved in the work of salvation. Father sends the Son, the Son does the work, and the Spirit applies it when you believe. Did you hear that? He sends the Son, the Son does the work on the cross, 
And when you believe, God then applies that work by the Spirit, bringing regeneration to your heart and making you a new creation in him. Sonship is confirmed by the scriptures, but it is a work of the Spirit in your life. Into our hearts, note that on a human level, you cannot give your nature to an adopted child. Did you hear me? On a human level. You can't adopt a child and give that child your nature. But when God saved you, he gave you his nature. What amazing truth. And to have the spirit in you, by the way, the question for this morning, are you ready? Is it Christ living you or the spirit living in you? Answer? Both, amen, right? Uh, Christ in you, Paul says, the hope of glory in Colossians chapter 1. Galatians 2.20, we've been there already. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And yet at the same time, the moment that the Spirit brought regeneration, he took abode, his presence, the helper, living, living in your life, in your, in your heart. I want you to notice one other thing about the text. I didn't get to that yet. It says the Son the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, same as in Romans 8. It's a, it's a term of endearment. You've heard it said before. We could say it in our vernacular. We could say like daddy, like a child says to daddy. And we have this incredible, incredible privilege as God's children and to come to him and address him like we do all the time when we pray here. We say, Father, Father. Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples how to pray, what did he say? He said, begin with what? Our Father who art in heaven. And the focus there is the wonder of this intimacy that you and I have as his child and his great care for our particular lives. I want you to notice something else about verse 6. The idea of the word crying, Abba, Father, it's what's called in a participle, participial form in the Greek, which means an ongoing thing. But I am in agreement with those who say that the idea of the crying there does not relate to you and I as sons, but relates to the work of the Spirit. That is to say, I pray that when you sang those hymns this morning, and when you hear the scriptures read or quoted, from the word, it is the Spirit of God that is saying in your heart, yes, that's my Father. Yes, that's me. Confirming continually. And it's an ongoing thing that's taking place in your life, even in the midst of those difficult circumstances in life. Maybe most of all, when he's saying, remember, wait a minute, you're my child. You're my child. You belong. You belong to me. So results of sonship is the gift of the Spirit who confirms sonship and makes us alive to spiritual things, to spiritual truths. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and how that's driven home to us by Paul in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. 1 Corinthians 2.10. Now, the previous context here is the mystery of God in terms of revealed in the New Testament with reference to Christ and his work and the wonder of our salvation fulfilled in, 
in Christ's death and resurrection. But then he says to us in verse 10, verse 10, For to us God revealed these great things through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who lives, who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual things or spiritual truths with spiritual truths or things. It's the work of the Spirit to bring that to our minds. He is the great helper of our knowing God and knowing spiritual things. When I was in, uh, when I was in college, there were colleges when I was younger, and when I was in college in, uh, in the great state of Wisconsin, okay, I had to take one of those, you know, you have those humanities, those required courses that you have. And I took one, uh, I think it was entitled Music of the Renaissance. I have no idea. It was temporary insanity. But I took that particular class, and you had to be able to match this uh, music that you would listen to, and you'd have to connect it to the composer that wrote the music. That would be part of the test in relating to this class. And young people, this is before uh, iPhones and all the rest of that stuff. So the way that you had to study for this is you had to go to the uh, university library, and you had to check out a headset, and you take the headset, and you had to go in the back of the library there, and then they had the the music listed, listened that you could uh, plug in the, the tape or uh, even a, a record. Oh, I just hate to date myself like that. You'd put the record on there and you'd listen to the things so that you could identify the music for the exam that was coming. And from time to time, there'd be people that would come in there and they would uh, be listening to all kinds of other music. And sometimes it was just stuff that they, you know, that they enjoyed and they'd be having those, those headset on and they would be listening and they would be singing with with what they were listening to. Kind of like karaoke night. You get the drift, okay? And lots of times they'd be back there listening and singing, and they were not good singers. And everybody in the library would be laughing, and that person would just be back there just, just singing, and it was terrible. But he could hear. But you couldn't hear what he was, you couldn't hear what he was listening to. But if you got a headset... And you took that thing and take that cord and you plug it into that particular uh, unit, you could hear what he was hearing. And what I'm trying to say to you this morning is that's what the Spirit of God is for the things of God and the Word of God. The Holy Spirit coming into your life plugs you into God. An awareness of who he is in a unique way. You are dead to him. And an ability to understand and comprehend the things of God. And it is part of of your gift as sonship, confirming that you're his in understanding spiritual things. This was Paul saying in that chapter 2, likewise, spiritually discerning spiritual things. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24, another way just to look at that for just a moment. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Luke 24. 
Christ and his men following his resurrection. Wow, what a section this is. And I'd love to just read about that road, guys. Walk with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. But I want to come toward the end of the chapter. Wait to verse 44. Here is the resurrected Christ and with appearing again, confirming his resurrection to his men. Verse 44 of Luke 24. Perhaps if you're there right now, you could just say amen. You're there? Okay. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now here's where I was heading. Look at verse 45. Then he did what? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What Christ did with his men right there is what the Holy Spirit does for the Christian. And it's a gift relating to sonship. All right, back to our text. Back to our text. So that when we come to the scriptures, we can even pray things like this in Psalm 119 and ask God, to help us in the Spirit as our helper to do so. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. All over Psalm 119, the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understand that I may have understanding. That's what the psalmist is praying as he talks about the uniqueness of the word of God and its primary place in the psalmist's life. I think it's important that I likewise remind us also, though, that the believer can and does grieve the Spirit of God living in you. And if you're not walking with the Lord, and you're not living for the Lord, I'm not talking about living a sinless life, but I'm talking about living for the Lord, and if you're not keeping short sin accounts, where you are quick to acknowledge your sin, confess your sin, affirm it, and repent of it. And if that's not going on in your life, it has a way of our sin grieves the Spirit of God, and if I can use the word, hinders or stifles his ministry in our life. And then we fail to enjoy hearing the word. We fail to enjoy the Lord as we ought to. And it's not a problem with the scriptures or the Holy Spirit. It is a problem with us hindering his ministry in our lives. Not talking about losing our salvation or anything of that nature. I'm talking about the reality that the blessings of the Spirit's ministry in your life confirming sonship is yours as you're living an obedient life. Faith plus obedience confirms sonship. Perseverance confirms sonship. You have every right to feel like a believer when you're behaving like one. Amen? It confirms. But the flip side of that is true, and that is when you're living out of the will of God, it hinders the ministry of the Spirit confirming sonship in your life. So we want to stay right with God. We want to stay current in confessing our sin, and we want to enjoy his ministry of confirming our, our sonship. It is amazing how much, I'll use Marshall here, how much better Marshall sounds when you have a good week with the Lord. Amen? It's also amazing how the word can seem so dull to you when you're not. 
It has everything to do with you and your relationship with the Lord and your walk, walk with him. Secondly, look at verse 7. Second reality here that we have of sonship. Second result is a possession of inheritance. Note of that, inheritance. Paul keeps coming back to that because it's so vital. Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir. Then an heir through God. All sons and inheritance based upon what he's done for you and in you. Why is Paul so big on this truth of an inheritance, of being an heir of God? Isn't enough that God would save a sinner like you and like me? Wouldn't that be enough? Isn't it enough that he would deliver me, deliver you in Christ from deserved wrath and forgive us of our sin? And yet the principle is this. We're taking notes. Here's the principle. Sonship equals heirship in Christ. Not deserved and not earned. And I want you to listen to the way Gramacki states this. Sonship earns, sonship carries within that relationship, heirship that we said. Every believer is an heir of God through Christ. But think about this. All that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. And all that belongs to the Son belongs to the Christian. My. Think about that. All that belongs to the Son belongs to the Christian. Wiersbe makes a contrast between life as a, a, a slave apart from the blessings of God in Christ and a son. He says the son has the same nature as the father, but the servant or the slave does not. The son has a father, but a servant has a master. The son obeys out of love, but the servant out of fear. The son has a future, but the servant has none. The son is rich, but the servant's poor. The son enjoys the riches of God's grace, of his goodness, and his wisdom. In fact, he possesses all riches in Jesus Christ. Guaranteed the moment that you are saved in the natural realm, in the natural realm, an inheritance is experienced when someone else dies. In the spiritual realm, your full inheritance now and future is the moment that you are saved by the very grace of God. Turn with me. Maybe we don't need to. Let's look. In Ephesians 1, here is the, the inheritance that is guaranteed in that great list of our blessings in Ephesians 1, all that we have in that, that has been given to us in Christ in the heavenlies. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our, there it is again, our inheritance, with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The natural realm, you wait for an inheritance. Spiritual realm, you have it now. All these blessings that are ours in him. Peter talks about it with reference to the future. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Inheritance, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed the last time. All that he has prepared for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it says in that incredible passage in Corinthians, things eyes have not seen, ear has not heard, and that which not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Wow, think about it. But our challenge is, we, is grasping the glory of our inheritance, future, because we struggle to live right now in the present. So we tend to get stuck with the things that are here and now and miss our focus upon not only the blessings now, but what's ahead for us and what we have not yet, eye has not seen and ear has not heard, what the Lord has prepared for us. When I was a a teen, I spent a couple of uh, weeks during the summer with my aunt and uncle in Lake Forest, Illinois north suburb of the city of Chicago. And while I was staying there with my Aunt Betty and Uncle Tony Cascarano, quite a name, huh? He had a business there of uh, redoing upholstery, and he did that for uh, some people that were quite, uh, quite wealthy financially. And on one occasion, he said to me, Kevin, uh, I came from that little town in Wisconsin. He said, I'm going to show you something like you haven't ever seen before. And I said, okay, let's do that. He said, here's the deal. You help me load this furniture, take you with me, and I'll show you beyond anything that you've seen in Bloomington, Wisconsin, a little town we grew up in. So I said, okay, let's, let's do that. Helped him load up this furniture in a van, and we headed out, and we were going along Lakeshore Drive. There is one up in Lake Forest, and it is obviously right along the Lake Michigan. We're driving along there. He's pointing out to some of these places that relate, some people that famous names, and then we stopped at one place, and there was a, a big wall that was there, and a, a big metal gates, and he pulled in right there, and he got out, and he identified himself on the speaker, and these gates opened, and we drove in there, and we went around um, at an angle, turned to the right, and started around, and there were some trees there. And as we came around the angle there, there was this house, a two-story house. And it was nice. It was, it was better than the house that I grew up in. We grew up in a nice house, but this one was pretty impressive. And being a teen and knowing it all, I said to him, you know, that's a nice house, but I've seen ones bigger than that. He said, yeah, I have too. That's the servants' quarters. Then we went around the rest of the way of the of the driveway there, past the trees, and then we came to this place. Long, tall. The thing that I remember about it was that it had big glass doors at the front of it. You could see in. I can see it yet today. You could see in. It had a big chandelier. And over, over here on the side, through those doors, you could see the winding staircase. And then in the back, it had glass, so you could look right through the place and see the Lake Michigan. 
it was something to see, and I had to admit to him, I hadn't seen prior anything like that. And eye has not seen and ear has not heard the things that God has prepared for you. And it's more than a place, although it is a place, it's in his presence. But what he has prepared for us is glory. Glory like you can't imagine. We spent a couple of weeks out on the, in the mountains, told you that. We saw glory. Go to the ocean, you see glory. See some of these sunsets and these fall days and the beauty of it, the sky red. You see a, just a little glimpse of glory in a fallen, cursed world. But there is a glory to come, first of all, that you will experience in your glorification and that you will take in one day when you stand in the presence of the creator of the universe. And whenever we think about that, Whenever the Bible speaks about our wealth, it always stops and then says, okay, now what about your walk? Whenever it says, this is what's coming to you, this is what you have, then it stops and says, okay, this relates to holiness of life right now. And in light of the promise of this inheritance, and in light of the glory, and in light of everything that the Bible says about what you have not yet seen and can't imagine what it's going to be like. Although, when you want to try to wrap your arm or your brain around it, just go over to Revelation 21 and 22 and start reading and try to imagine what that's going to be like. But it's going to be something. And the Bible then always does this. It always says, light of what's coming, here's how we ought to live right now. Therefore, you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God, an inheritance, now and coming. Then he gives us a third one. The results of sonship is a knowledge, a true knowledge of the living God, number three. How do we get that? Look at verse 8. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those by which, which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, almost sounds like the first hour this morning. Amen for some of you? Amazing statement, verse 9. But now, but now. But notice what he's saying in verse 8 to the Galatians. At that time... At that time when you did not know God. Can you identify with that? Well, you thought you knew God. The Galatians thought they knew God. But they were idolaters. Notice the rest of the verse. To those which were by nature are no gods. Their gods were man-made. Their gods were idols. Their gods were themselves. And you remember one of the places in over in Acts of Paul and Barnabas taking the gospel to one of the Galatians' communities. And there was a crippled man, and he was healed. And the the people began to call Paul and Barnabas by the gods of the Greeks. They were worshiping false gods. Paul says, that's where you were at. And behind those gods was demonic deception. 1 Corinthians 10.20, Paul talks about that. And they were in bondage to those gods. They worshipped those idols. Before they came to Christ, their religion was that of works of law. And they were slave to those works. And they were in bondage to them and to the idols behind them. Verse again, however, at that time, when you did not know God, you were, enslaved, you were slave to those by which nature are no gods. 
back in verse 3, remember? So also we, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now you know God. And look at the way he says it in verse 9. I just love that. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. And beloved, a, a wrong view of God is a false God. And before you had a right view of God, you had a wrong view, and the wrong view of God was a God of your making, not a God of the Scriptures. And the most common mad-made false God of our day is a God who exists for man to meet man's needs and man's desires, and that is the most prominent false God proclaimed today, that God exists for you rather than the fact that you exist for him and his glory. Stuart Scott has a great statement about that in his exemplary husband book where he talks about a a God who is like a domesticated genie. If you can't read that, I can read it for you because I have it right here. He He says, some people believe God is obligated to deliver based on their behavior. The same way a genie is obligated to grant wishes to one who rubs the lamp Man in his own pride thinks that, he, that if he is good or uses the name of God, he will be granted what he desires, maybe even assured of heaven. In this case, God is merely a means to one's own end. To look at God in this way is to live as though we are the source and the means and the end of all things, as though God owes us what we want. Truly, when this person looks in a mirror, he is seeing his God, he himself is his own God. That God won't save. Not that kind. And yet he says, you, you've, Galatians, you've come to know God. There's only one way that's possible. And that is through the gospel and the Holy Spirit bringing regeneration to the heart. You've come to know God, he is saying to them, by God making himself known to you. How did that happen? How did that happen? First hour, like he did with Lydia. This morning, were you here for the first hour? He opened Lydia's heart to the truth of who the real God is and what he's done in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, opening your heart to him by the means of the gospel, the good news, that's the good news about Christ. And by God drawing you to himself. How did he do that? You heard. You were convicted. And you said, I need Christ. I need to be saved. And in all of that, God was working. He was drawing you to himself. No man comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. But I have a bigger question than all of that. If you're here this morning and you say, that's me. There was a time in my life. I asked Jesus to save me. I have a bigger question than that. Why did he save you? Why you? And there's only one answer. It's God. That he's merciful. And he's gracious, because you didn't figure this thing out on your own. It was all of grace. Ephesians 2, you were dead spiritually, spiritually dead. You were not only unwilling to come to Christ, you were unable to come to Christ unless he opened up your heart to the truth of the gospel. And so having done that, brought you to himself. Look over in the book of Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Chapter 2, how Paul states that 
great truth of what God has done with you. And if he hasn't, then the message of the Bible is this. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon while he is near. Call upon him while he's near. That would be today and say, Lord, I know that that's not me. I don't have that assurance in my heart, but I want that. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, the Bible says he'll save you. He'll do that today. And that'd be the greatest thing that could happen in this day at Plainfield Bible Church. Will the rest of God's people say amen to that? And there was a day in your life, then your burden with Paul is that that would be true in other people's lives. Now, I forgot why we're going to Colossians. Just kidding. Look at verse chapter 2. I thought. Colossians 2. Oh, chapter 3. Colossians 3. Now, verse 12. Now, here's why. Everybody look up here. We say this all the time. We love him. Why? Because he what? One more time. We love him. Why? Okay, look at verse 12. So also those who have been chosen of God. You chose him. Why did you choose him? Because he first what? Chose you. (laughs) Chose you. And if you're not humbled by that, there's something wrong with you. Back to the main question. Why you? Here it is. God, mercy, grace. He loves sinners. And if I would ask who's the greatest sinner in the room today, your hand ought to go up first, but I'll beat you. It's a faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul said, among whom I have chief or foremost of all. And don't you forget, please, that is a post-conversion statement. Paul's saying, even now, I realize that I'm a sinner, but by the grace of God, God saves sinners. Can you say amen to that? So, chosen of God, back to Galatians. To know God, rather be known by God. What an incredible thing. So he says this, How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Well, then what in the world, Paul is saying, are you trying to do to work your way into heaven? And trusting in the law and what you do with reference to what, in contrast to what Jesus Christ has done. And he gives the example of that in verse 10, doesn't he? You observe days and months and seasons and years and you do this and you keep this law and you keep that law and this holiday and whatever else and all these Jewish requirements and celebrations and you're trusting in that and if you're trusting in that and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, you're, you're dead to God. You don't know him. And Paul lives with that burden for these people and for others every day. Notice verse 11, then his great concern for them. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain of no effect, no purpose. You can come to a Bible church like this and hear about what Christ has done for sinners every week and every week and every week and every week and still be lost Unless, unless you believe the gospel and repent of your sin 
and put your hope in Christ and Christ alone. And when you do, he says, you're mine. And you're mine forever. He doesn't give you the spirit to take the spirit away from you. It's eternal. That's the point of the passage we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It's the guarantee of the future inheritance coming your way. So what an incredible thing to be able to say, I know that I'm known by the God of heaven. And because you are his adopted child, you've been given the gift of the spirit. You've been given an inheritance now that is future Likewise, and you've been given a true knowledge of God, not based upon your intellect, but based upon the scriptures and the promise that those to whom he saves, he keeps, and he keeps them forever. And can you say amen to that? Let's bow in prayer. So, Father, we thank you for these riches. We thank you for the hope of them. We thank you for all the promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you love sinners, not for our sin, but for the fact that you sent your son and demonstrated your love for the lost in what you've done through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the blessings that we've talked about this morning. May they impact the way that we live our lives this week, the way that we are assured of what's ahead for us as believers, and it causes us to live confident lives, even face the reality of the end of this physical life with confidence knowing what is in store for us one day in your presence forever and ever and ever. And to all of this, we say praise God and amen.